Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gav's. Starring Howie the Milkman. Soon after my 13th birthday, the war broke out, and Dad was one of the first to join up. He was almost excited to go off to war. I remember him the morning he headed off with a buddy of his... They were joking around like I'd never seen him do before. He had a uniform and a rifle and a mess tin. I thought for sure he was going to storm the enemy lines and take some crucial enemy position and bring down the Waylanders all by himself. He'd be in the papers, and I would tell everyone it was my dad who'd won the war. My keenest wish was that one day I'd be old enough to go off with dad and mow down the enemy with my own machine gun. I told Dad I wanted to go with him to fight, and I looked up into his face to see what he thought. What I wasn't expecting was the boring monotony that we settled into after he'd gone. When it was just Mom and me, she fell back into her old, forgetful ways. I tried to cheer her up like I'd done when I was little, but she was always in some far-off place. Rationing cards, metal drives, awful news from the trenches, letters from Dad mostly blacked out. I had bread and molasses most nights for dinner, 
a lot of the men were gone, I'd tried not to give mom too much trouble. A lot of the mothers on our street went to work in the factories or knitting uniforms and things for the soldiers, but mom said she couldn't because she had to watch me. I did my best to go to school and to say no to Quint when she showed up, but sometimes I still had my spells and woke up in the early morning down by the river or in a neighbor's backyard and was too tired to stay awake in school. Mom couldn't afford to keep taking me to doctors who didn't do anything but charged a bunch of money, so she took me to see the local priest, even though we weren't churchgoers. He said some prayers and said I was sure to grow out of it, so she took me to see Madame Odella, who pretended to be scared of me. She told Mom to burn some herbs in our house and to give me this revolting tea, and then told us not to come back. But still, I kept having spells. I woke up sometimes at night when Mom was crying, but I always drifted back to sleep pretty quickly, her sobs echoing through my dreams. And then, a few months later, Dad came home again, but he was deaf in one ear because of some big gun or bomb or something that had gone off too close to him. He had a tattoo now of a harp on his arm. Mom was really overjoyed and didn't care about his ear at all. She even managed to scrounge up some eggs for breakfast one morning. But Dad was really tired out and soon fell back into his gloomy, angry moods. As it turned out, the war was going badly, even though our country, Taulaw, was much bigger and better than our northern former colony, Wayland. Like I said a while ago, a year or two into the war, the Waylanders even took over part of Ming's Bight, and there were soldiers all around our school. A bunch of new kids came to our school because theirs got bombed. Some kids went to check out the annexed part of town, and I would have gone too, but I felt Mom needed me at home. Don't. And anyway, the school kids were pretty boring compared to the pirates I'd once run with. Eventually, our side got the Waylanders out of Ming's Bight, and things settled back to normal. Dad kept getting more and more sullen, and I think his moods started bringing Mom down too. They talked less and less. It got to be that every time I heard a bottle clink, it reminded me of Dad... I kept getting in trouble at school for not doing my work or for doing it really badly. I was tired a lot of the time and was trying my best, but that didn't seem to matter to the teachers. One morning, I walked up to the front door of the school and saw a bunch of the older kids sitting on the steps smoking and watching me, and I just turned around and left. I spent the day walking all around the city, looking at houses and daydreaming. I drifted down to the university and had my lunch on a bench. The next day the same thing happened. I realized I hadn't done some math homework and I was going to get in trouble, so I just walked off. The school sent letters, but I don't know if anyone read them. I also went out a lot at night, sometimes all night, which annoyed my parents at first, but then I guess they figured I was old enough now to take care of myself. A few times I ran into Quint and we'd go down to the shore. We'd slip out into the sea and listen to the stories of the drowned sailors in the harbor until the dark things came and we had to get away. The days went on and on and blurred into each other. I discovered that the more you don't go to school, the harder it is to go back. I figured it probably didn't matter that much, 
As if you need math when you're fighting on the front lines. I just had to wait a couple of years and I'd go off a fighting man. I knew I was a strategic thinker and was sure I'd distinguish myself in the war. Then when I came home, I'd be able to do whatever I wanted. But I never explained any of this to mom and dad. One time at the market, mom and I ran into my English teacher, Mrs. Colpus, a withered old prune. She saw me, she saw mom, and decided to put on a bit of a show. Mr. Coxwell, how good to see you, young man. Are you planning on joining us again this term? And then she turned to mom. You must be aware, Mrs. Coxwell, that Howie has been skipping school with disturbing regularity since October. We've sent several letters that were supposed to be signed and returned. Mom looked at me and looked at Mrs. Colpus and stammered something about it being tough with the war. The war affects us all, Mrs. Coxwell, but if Howie doesn't complete his studies, he's not going to have much of a future ahead of him. I wished the old bitch would drop dead right then and there, and I swore to myself if there was any way I could get back at her one day, I would. But to my great surprise, when we got home, there were no punishments, no stern talks, and I learned that day that sometimes you can behave so extremely badly that your parents can't even begin to handle it, and they don't even do anything to punish you. The next day, Mom made me lunch as usual without a word, and things just went on more or less as usual. I started spending more time with Quint around then. We'd have long talks. We'd been hanging out a long time, but she didn't seem much older than when we'd first met, although in some lights she looked much older and wrinkled. She told me I could always go home with her any time I wanted, and that all my friends missed me and were waiting for me. But I told her that I couldn't just leave my parents. I was an only child, after all. She sometimes played jokes on me, like the time she pushed me in front of a bus, but I got out of the way at the last second. Sometimes... She got mad and said that if I didn't come home soon, my friends were going to be very cross with me. One time, we were playing on an old swing set. We both jumped off our swings at the same time and fell down into the biggest garbage pile you ever saw. The sky was on fire, but somehow it didn't bother me. We rooted around trying to find interesting things. We put on old, musty, torn clothes and pretended to be the old people who died in them. We threw old bottles at each other and laughed when they smashed. I picked up little gears and bits of wood and thought I might make myself a radio until, I guess, the movement aroused the interest of the big, bright green worm things that lived in the heap. They came crawling out and they were fast, little pincers moving and eye stalks twitching this way and that, watching us. So Quint and I ran off into the very early morning with that smell of plants exhaling. I felt that tired stomach feeling, but Quint kept egging me on. Hit it! Hit it, she said. I didn't know what she was talking about until I found myself swinging a big stick like some sort of bat, and... I'd broken the fanciest gas lamp I'd ever seen on the front lawn of some rich person's house. If I hadn't been on the tail end of a spell, I would have run off like the Dickens. I'd learned that much from the pirates. But I just stood there dumbfounded, staring at the broken glass, 
and listening to the hiss of the gas spewing out into the universe. And Quince giggles as she ran away. And here comes the owner in his pajamas, mad as the devil. And he drags me into his car and drives me down to the police station. And me all the while, just in a daze and going along like a lost puppy. The police brought me home and explained things to my parents, who were just waking up and didn't even know I'd snuck out. The rich homeowner had come along and clearly wanted to instill some lessons about moral fortitude into both me and my parents. Dad, to my surprise, shook off his usual lethargy and argued every which way that it wasn't his responsibility and he shouldn't have to pay for the lamp. But the police were having none of it. And like I said, it was a fancy lamp. The rich old guy called Dad and me ne'er-do-wells, and Dad was apoplectic and yelling that he was a veteran and what had the old fart done for his country anyways. But in the end, Dad had to pay, and it was a lot of money. The worst thing was that Dad was late again to the factory. I'd had a couple of these incidents when I was out all night, against my will, and Dad got so angry he lost track of time and went in late. But a factory isn't like any old shop. If you're not there on time, a whole pile of people might be left waiting around because everything has to happen in a certain order. And if one person isn't there, it's a problem for the whole lot of them. So the foreman told Dad to go back home and that they didn't need him anymore. So not only did he have to pay a week's wages for the lamp, he no longer had a wage to pay it with. And then there was the inevitable yelling session, and that's when Dad said something that really stuck with me. He said it calmly because he'd thought about it. Your mother and I could have had such a nice life. Do you know that? After he said that, I just walked out the door and decided to let Dad have some time to cool off. And even though it had been a long while, I found myself wandering down to the portlands. I wandered this way and that, But secretly, I knew I was looking for the Pirates of Jador. I wandered down the old laneways we used to terrorize, but I didn't see any pirates right away. I thought maybe they'd disappeared until I saw, beside a dumpster, two pirates talking quietly to a cop. They exchanged a few words and I saw them give something to the cop, and then the cop walked off. I didn't recognize these pirates. They were maybe ten or eleven, with wooden swords and colorful pirate rags, but I walked towards them. Who's this snot face sneaking around and watching us in the dark? Tell us your name or die! I'm Howie, I used to be one of you. You know Magooan, we were mates back in the old days. Magooan, eh? When's the last time you seen him? For maybe five years ago. Well, Billy, he's either a pirate from the olden days or a stinky old snooper. Either way, he's coming with us. So they marched me along at Sword Point until we got to the abandoned old sugar refinery. Is this where... Silence, or we'll slice out your tongue. We went to the basement and through a tunnel. It led to other tunnels that were maybe for sewers or trains, but they were quiet until we came to a big opened-out room full of candles and lamps, and all the pirate kids were lounging around or sitting on old mattresses and blankets. There were piles of trinkets they must have scavenged, and the kids brought me to a pirate wearing Magooan's old pirate hat. But when he turned around, it was Scar, and he was about 12 years old now. The kids all gathered round. Scar was the only one I recognized. 
We found this loafer sneaking around saying he's an old pirate of yore. Shane, don't you remember me? It's Howie. And he looked me over. I don't remember any Howie. Stab him in his eyeballs. The other kids grabbed me. Remember I couldn't shoot the dog with Magoon? My dad came to get me. Scar put up his hands for the kids not to stab me in the eyeballs. Right, the lily-livered boy. Scar was always a joker, but I could tell he was happy to see me. And what do you think you're doing coming back here? I came to see Magoon to ask for help. Magoon is no more. Traded in his captain's hat for a helmet. He told a fib about his birthday and they dragged him off to the trenches. But it was only a short trip. He got his reward for joining the potato eaters. Came right back in a box three weeks later. We went to see him off at the coffin house, peeked under the lid, and Magoon was just a pile of ashes. We've all sworn a promise upon our red beating hearts to never join the old people's war. Release him. And the kids let me go. You can stay with us tonight for old time's sake, but you're no pirate. They lent me some old blankets. I curled up in a corner and drifted off to sleep, dreaming of poor old Magoon burning up and screaming his poor young life away. That was enough to put the idea of joining the army out of my head forever. The next day, we woke up in the early afternoon and I hung around with the pirates for a while. Under Scar, the pirates had been making a lot of money procuring things that no one else could because of the rationing. They knew people at the portland and it turned out that the police were about their best customers. They treated me to some breakfast sausages and other goodies I hadn't seen for a dog's age and then it was time for me to go. The only other time I saw the pirates was right after it happened. I went down to find them and begged Scar to help me for old time's sake. I told him what had happened and he gave me a handful of Ruperts and he also sent a couple of kids with me to help get me on a ferry to St. Gaff's. The kids paid a sailor a little something and he hid me in a closet for the whole ride over then helped me sneak off. But that day, after leaving the pirates, I just sort of wandered around. I didn't know if I was going to go home or whether I would start up my own gang of kids, maybe in my neighborhood. I knew enough to live off the streets now. I could make contacts and smuggle contraband like the pirates, and probably I'd make a pretty good living at it too. I was setting out my plans when I sat down on a bench by the university downtown. Someone had left an old copy of the Tao Law Runner on the bench, and Eliza Pike was on the cover. I've been reading her stories for a couple of years now. It's like they took me away to a distant place for a while while I read them. To my surprise, this issue was the one with the first Eliza story I'd ever read in it, the one that had gotten me hooked in the first place. I flipped to the story and read the whole thing again. The story was about a boy like me who had a medical fit and disappeared into the night. His parents were totally distraught and willing to do anything to get him back. His mother was pasting notices on every lamppost. Eliza spotted the mother putting up a lost child notice and decided to get involved. The grandfather insisted on meeting with Eliza and told her that he'd pay her whatever it would take to get the boy back. But Eliza was already rich, so she didn't want his money. She pieced together the clues. The boy had left behind an empty pill bottle, 
a partially burned bank deposit slip, and a shoehorn. Eliza did some sleuthing and figured out that the boy had gotten the wrong prescription from the drunken pharmacist whose son had just been killed in the war. Instead of his anti-fit medicine, the boy had gotten a powerful hallucinogenic drug and must have wandered off while imagining who knows what. So Eliza consulted with a doctor who told her that most people experiencing powerful hallucinations believed that the images were coming from the gods. So Eliza deduced that the boy would be at, or perhaps near, a church. So she scoured the places of worship, and sure enough, she found him and brought him home. But, in a final twist, Eliza delved deeper into the bank slip. She'd noticed that the boy wore slip-on shoes and had no need of a shoehorn, while the grandfather had very fancy shoes that were probably really uncomfortable to put on. So after more digging around, she figured out that the drunken pharmacist hadn't been acting alone. The grandfather had put the druggist up to it. It all had to do with a secret trust fund the grandfather wanted to get his hands on and his evil desire to take control of the boy's life. But instead, the lost boy was safe and sound with his loving parents thanks to Eliza's heroics. I could only imagine how awful it would be to have people fighting over you like that. But the sheer brilliance of Eliza's detective work astonished me. Just from little details like a shoehorn, she was able to unravel these elaborate schemes. I got up from the bench and just kept turning over the details of the story in my mind. The father trying hard to do his job, but his boss telling him to go home and rest because it must be so stressful to lose a child. Eliza's interrogation of the pharmacist and his incoherent blabbering responses except for him accidentally letting on that he kept a lot of weird hallucinogenics that no one ever used in the back closet. It was sheer genius. At this point, I was getting pretty hungry, so I took a risk and knocked on the door of my house. My parents let me back in without much comment. Mom made me bread and molasses for dinner, and I'll always remember how great it tasted. But the house was different now. My parents had packed up a lot of our things and had started moving into a room in a nearby apartment building. They'd already thrown out the toys I'd had as a kid. Dad had a new job as the maintenance man for two or three of these buildings that were all owned by the same person. So we got a ground floor room and Dad had to work all different hours. Before moving, Mom and Dad sat me down and told me I could stay if I followed some new rules. A curfew? and they didn't want to see any more letters from school. It was a funny thing to move all of a sudden like that and just never go back to your old room. The new place wasn't as nice as the old one. The window in the living room was close to the garbage bins at the back, and it was cold since it was winter now. We didn't have as much money, and instead of radiators like the old house that just went most of the time, in this building... You had to put coins into a machine, and the radiator would get warm for 20 minutes at a time. But we didn't have as much money as we used to, so Mom made some little metal circles that she could stuff into the machine to get it to work. But at the end of every week, a man would come by to collect the money, and he'd make Mom give her real coins for every fake one she'd put in. I started going back to school more regularly, and I started paying more attention in English class, I spoke to Mrs. Colpus, and I told her that I'd turned over a new leaf and was committed to my future. 
She gave me a sickly smile, and I think we both knew that we still hated each other's guts. But still, I applied myself. That was because... At first, slowly, but then surely, an idea began to form in my head. An idea that hung on to me like a dog that had bitten my leg and wouldn't let go. I was going to become a writer of serialized stories for the Tao Law Runner. I would go straight and become a rich and famous writer. And I had a whole silo full of stories in my head because I was going to write all my stories about my own experiences. It was going to be called The Extraordinary Adventures of the Pirates of East Mingsbite. I changed the name so I wouldn't get into trouble with the real pirates of Jador. I could already imagine the interviews, me telling reporters about my checkered past and my desire to pull my family out of poverty. Everyone always loved those sorts of stories. At home, it was the usual routine. Dad came home angry every night, sometimes drunk, cursing his boss and the clogged-up toilets and his mop. Mom just floated through the days, smoking and looking out the window. I knew that once I told them my plans, they'd be happier. I'd start getting rich, and we could move back to a normal house. I set to work, in secret, crafting my story. At first, I could only write a few hundred words an evening, but then the pages just kept flowing and flowing. The story began like this. O oh, insouciant inhabitant of Ming's Bite, little do you know what lurks beneath the sidewalk that you walk on, for down below there is a race of children that the world forgot. But they will not be so easily forgotten. They toil in the shadows to uphold justice for the ordinary boys and girls who have no one to fight for their cause. First we meet their captain, a ruthless swashbuckler whose eye had been poked out in a knife fight. McShane is his name, and no finer pirate had ever trodden the tunnels and sewers that link every part of our fair city. I went on to tell the tale of Maggie Malone, a damsel who walked the streets selling seafood. She would call out, Snails and mussels, alive, alive, oh. All the pirate boys were in love with her, and she was the only one who could hope to mend their wild ways. But one day, the hapless lass was abducted by the rich boys from the north part of town. They thought they were the best people in the world because their fathers all had their own private gas lamps on their front yards. Who knows what they wanted from Maggie, but the pirates of East Mingsbite vowed vengeance. There was a terrible battle on the fields of Abernathy, a park just outside of town. Both sides met in the early hues of dawn. Release the girl or die, McShane shouted. The leader of the rich boys, Alphonsius McMyrtle, shouted back, We are the captains of the city now and forever, and we do not have to answer to you. Maggie is ours now. With that, the pirates quickly drew their swords and attacked. In the ensuing melee, Maggie was unfortunately slain. As her lifeblood ran out all over the sidewalk, she looked up at McShane and said, I knew you would come for me. You were always the one. Promise me you'll always remain alive, alive, oh. And just like that, her spirits escaped up to heaven. That night they buried poor Maggie on a lonely hill where the moon shines and the wolves howl. As they watched the moon rise over the pile of dirt, McShane sighed. 
at least we all have each other. And they looked heavenward to the glistening stars above, knowing in their hearts that they would be true friends for eternity and beyond. I have to admit that even I shed a small tear when I wrote those last words. I knew that my parents probably weren't the best judges of literature, so I decided my first move was to bring the story to Mrs. Colpus, my English teacher. At first, she only wanted to know why I hadn't read the assigned books or written some book report I was supposed to have written. I didn't want to be insulting, but I figured there was no point in doing that stuff when I was already embarking on my journey as a professional author. I waited after school while she read the story. I told her I was trying to go for the tone of Eliza Pike, but with a more gritty, street kid feeling. She didn't say much, but I knew she was impressed when she said that my parents should come in the next day to discuss my work. My parents were sitting at the table having toast and tea for breakfast and looking through newspapers. Mom, Dad, I have a little surprise for you. I've made a decision about what I'm going to do. I'm going to write stories for the magazines. You never go to school. How are you going to be a writer? I have been going to school. No, I mean it. I wrote something already, and Mrs. Colpus wants you to come in and talk about it. Dad looked up at this. What's this about? In trouble again? No, Dad, really, I wrote a story. Do you want to read it? He heaved a big, suspicious sigh. (sighs) Later, uh, what time are we supposed to see the teacher? Him hesitating like that didn't worry me too much. I knew I'd make them both proud once they'd read what I'd written. But the meeting at school didn't go the way I thought it would. Mrs. Colpus just kept going on and on about how I should really stick to the assigned readings and they were more than enough for me without me doing extracurricular writing, which, she made clear, she didn't think was ready for publication. When we got outside, Dad gave one of his usual sighs. (sighs) Business as usual, another kick in the pants for the Coxwells. Why can't you just be a normal kid? In a strange coincidence, Mrs. Colpus was found strangled to death behind the school a few weeks later. But I wasn't going to school then, and I didn't know anything about it. I knew that artists are often not recognized right away, and that it's normal to have conflicts with your parents, so I wasn't deterred by what my idiot teacher said. I actually took some money out of Mom's purse and went down to the post office. I folded up my story and sent it to the Taula runner. I kept going on my walks and thinking of more story ideas. I was beginning to think I'd written my address wrong on the letter, but then, one day, I got a little card in the mail saying that they didn't have time to publish my story at the moment. That was disappointing, but they also said, thank you for thinking of the runner, which I took as an open invitation to send more stories. But still, I couldn't help being a bit disappointed. And then... One day, I was reading an Eliza story, and between advertisements for the boy's own machine gun that shot real pellets, and the freeze-dried fish that came alive in your own bowl, there was a notice. There was a picture of a man in a suit smoking a pipe and holding a big book in his hands. I've made best-selling authors out of hundreds of fellows just like you. The ad went on to explain that the man, Mr. William G. Sullivan, could print your story in a beautiful leather binding, as many copies as you wanted, and with golden gilding for an extra fee. 
He explained that with the proper binding, you could just take your books to the bookstore and get them to sell the books for you, and you'd split the profits. The path ahead was as bright as the sky above my head. I walked back home on a cloud, past the booming factory and the old geezer passed out in front of the pub. I was going to get out of here and become famous. When I got home, Dad had his eyes closed and a beer in his hand. Mom told me to leave him be because he'd had another fight with his boss, our landlord, but I knew I could cheer him up. I explained the whole thing to my parents and showed them the ad I'd cut out of the magazine. Dad looked at Mom and I could see he was shaking a bit. I didn't sign up for this. And that made Mom really worried. She rushed over to him. Your father has enough trouble without this, Howie. You run along now, okay? But what do you think? Can we do it? We have enough trouble putting food on the table without this nonsense. But it says how you can cut out the middleman publishers and just sell the books yourself at the bookshops. Howie! Didn't you hear anything your teacher said? It's crap, okay? Your stories are crap. And I don't want to hear any more about it. You want to be a famous writer? You'll be lucky to get a job sweeping floors like your dad. You're a freak, Howie. Don't you get that? And for the first time, just for a flash, I hated them both. I felt myself starting to shake, just like Dad. And then the sentence that had been percolating deep down came bubbling up to the surface. I wished he was dead. I stormed out the door, and out into the evening light, and down the sidewalk, and down around the corner, and right down into the barber's chair. I was strapped in there, and the barber's face was all razor cuts, and scraggly black beard, and a sloppy toothless mouth. He was cutting my fingers off one knuckle at a time. They were falling with bloody little splats all over the floor. They'll all have to come off, I'm afraid, the barber said. Quint crawled in on her hands and knees in a stained blue dress. She picked up my knuckles and stuffed them in her mouth. I couldn't move. Quint, I want those back. Don't eat them. But she just giggled through her full mouth and crawled back out. Finally, the barber was done, and he unstrapped me. You better get get going, son, or you'll be late, mind. So I ran out into the train station. There were whistles and people yelling, and the trains on every tracks were just about to leave. Someone handed me a ticket, but I couldn't hold it. No fingers. So I ran up and down the tracks, looking for my train. The blood still poured from my hands, but no one seemed to notice. And then I slipped in a puddle of it and fell right into the tide. It was pushing me, washing me up against the rocks, slimy and slippery with green stuff. The sky was like iron, and the sea was all blood. I scrambled to get up and slipped again, breaking my jaw on a rock. But I finally got out, and there was Quint laughing at me in her awful blue dress. That's what you get for sticking around there. Is Mommy and Daddy oh so happy to see you? Yeah, I told you so. (laughs) I picked up a rock with what was left of my hands and threw it at her. She looked indignant. How could you? Something inside me welled up and exploded in a torrent of abuse. I shouted about how much I hated her and I just wanted to be left alone, and I hoped one day that the doctors would find a way to cut her out of me for good. It was hard to yell through my broken jaw, and spit and blood went flying out with my insults and rage. Quint just kept giggling at me. 
And then her giggle stopped when she saw a terrifying black dog, the hound. He growled and leaped on her. My heart felt lighter when the dog jumped up on her face and scratched. She ran off and I ran after her, right down Blodger Street, a block from my house with all the shops on it. The spell seemed to be over, but I grabbed a stick that was there and just started smashing the windows of every shop, all up one side and down the other, and then I smashed every window on my street and our apartment building too. The windows shattered like a thousand broken beer bottles. Until the policeman came and I almost swung at him, but he got the stick out of my hands. I was still screaming and mad. Later at the police station, Dad argued up and down that it wasn't his problem that I should stay there in jail. But the police said because I was a minor, I was his responsibility, and all the windows were his responsibility, and he had to take me home because they couldn't leave me in an adult jail. So he dragged me out by my neck, but I couldn't even really see very well for all the pounding in my chest and my hard breathing. My fingers were twitching, and so was something above my eye. Outside our house, the neighbors were all watching the show. Some were sweeping up the glass. I gathered that Dad had gotten fired again on account of me and the windows, and he didn't have anything to say to me. He just dragged me along like I was a giant boat anchor. Until I broke free and ran off as fast as I could, right down into the caves under the city. And this was the only double spell I'd ever had, but this time it didn't feel like a spell. It was a dark, cold tunnel, not man-made. But I just ran along blind. I saw the back of some horrible creature lumbering along. Later I realized that I'd recognized it from the picture of the thing that came up through the sinkhole on the outskirts of town a few years ago. They'd printed the picture in newspapers. But at the time I just ran screaming and scraping my fists along the rock walls until they were just bloody pulp. And I ran back in the night, up our street, and no one else was there until I got to our house, where Dad was standing tottering and drunk with a whiskey bottle. There was a small suitcase at his feet. Your clothes. You're out of here. I don't want to see you again. I pretended it's what I wanted, too. Fine, but I want my Eliza Pike magazines. He guffawed. Your magazines? They're not yours. You didn't pay for them. Just take your bag and get the hell out of my sight. He picked up the suitcase and threw it down at me. I felt the black, seething rage come up. I felt like it was big enough and black enough to stretch out across the sky and blot out the stars and steal the breath right out of his fucking mouth. And there it was, the remembrance I'd pushed down until this very moment. The hound was on him, ripping and biting. I stood there watching... I saw my father's eyes looking into mine, hurt, shocked, and sad. They were my eyes, the eyes I'd looked into since I'd been born. And for the rest of my life, I'll never know what he was thinking. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.